not going to talk about Cambodia too much because we, we wait until everybody's back and we'll do a, a good feedback. We'll do a video for you and we'll feedback properly on the trip. We don't kind of want to steal their thunder, as it were, by telling you all the good stories uh, before they get back. But I can say it was a good trip. Um, we accomplished all the things that we hoped to accomplish. Uh, we stayed safely. We traveled safely. We stayed healthy. Uh, we have built strong relationships with the, the partnership we have over there. We have lots of exciting things to try and encourage you with, and we would like very much for the congregation to stay very involved with what's happening over in Cambodia. Um, I, I'm trying to tally up exactly how many sessions we taught, but it was a lot. <laughs> um, Anton Helen, on the first two days, uh, stayed in Phnom Penh and taught a conference for church leaders from close by to Phnom Penh. Uh, they taught about eight or ten sessions there. While they were doing that, Matt and myself and Kiara went about five hours north of Phnom Penh, up the, the Mekong River, uh, to an island called Kutrong, uh, where there's a new ministry starting with an informal school starting for about 60 children on the island, which is uh, gaining momentum and providing a way to provide a service to the community, uh, which is not a Christian community, um, and gain access to speaking to the parents and the children as they are taught English, just talking to them about Jesus. And we had a, a wonderful experience on the second day we were there. I think I can share this one story with you. We, uh, we went door to door on, on the, the first day that we arrived. Um, the people running the little school, a guy called Sao Paul, uh, asked the pupils if it was okay if we came to see some parents the following day, just to talk to them about our lives. And a couple of parents let him know that they were okay if we did drop by. So uh, we took the ferry across because we were staying in a town on the side of the river, had to take a little ferry across. Uh, Buna calls it the furry. I sort of imagine this hairy boat going over the river. So I took the ferry over in the morning, and you, you, the island's just got one concrete path that runs around the perimeter, and all the houses are stationed around that, and the fields are in the middle. Uh, and you get around either on little pony carts or on the back of motorcycles, and we were on the back of mopeds that morning. We got dropped off, and we went to go and see some families, and... Uh, typical village houses in Cambodia are built up on stilts and the living areas underneath. They sleep upstairs in, in the building itself, but there are sort of uh, woven platforms underneath that you sit on. That's where it's cooler in the course of the day. And we went strolling down the path and then found this house, went in, we were welcomed. Uh, and we began to share the gospel with the people there. We had two Khmer people with us, and one of them was an evangelist. He spoke about Jesus, and then Buna spoke about it. Then he asked us to give testimony, and all of us gave testimony. Um, and the couple were very polite and very welcoming and very friendly, uh, and they said they would think about what we were talking about. But as we were about to leave, we heard that there was somebody up in the house, and we found out that the grandfather of the house, who was 89 years old, was in a hammock upstairs. He had injured his knee, and he, he was, I wouldn't call it bedridden, he was hammock-ridden at that stage. Um, but because the floors have made of slats to allow the air to flow through, he'd heard every word of what was going on underneath the house. We didn't know he was there, but he was listening to us, and he asked us to come up and pray for him, which we did, and we prayed for his knee and for his health, and when we'd finished doing that, he said he'd heard what was said underneath, and he would like to give his life to Jesus, and so we had a conversion right there, almost accidentally by a guy hearing us through the floorboards of the house. Um, we went back to Phnom Penh, met up with the rest of the team, and then after that, we visited two more villages and ran conferences there, and I'll, I'll leave that for us to report back together. Uh, about next week. Um, we traveled well. We stayed healthy. Um, I think we were all pretty tired, uh, but it was a blessing. And 
I trust that this congregation is going to stay very involved with that ministry over there, and that it's my dream that many more of you will travel over and see what's going on there so that you can carry Cambodia in your heart. It's a country that really does need Jesus. There's a lot of good work going on there, and we are able to be part of that. Um, in sharing with you this morning, I, I want to touch on something that I talked about over there. The second of the two villages we, we visited last week uh, was a village called Takeo, and none of the places we went to were particularly wealthy, uh, but Takeo is really poor. Um, and the people who came in, I asked Buna, what's this province famous for? And he said, nothing. Um, they just export rice uh, to the rest of the country. They, they're rice farmers, and it's extremely hard work. And the people that we were preaching to for the two days that we were there were people who were laborers on the rice fields. Um, they work really, really hard, and they have very little in terms of material things. And we found that as we finished preaching, people came flocking up for prayer, even with us, us inviting people to come up for prayer. Um, we would finish teaching a session. It's really, really hot. Uh, you get dried out, you finish, and you think, okay, they're going to take a break. We're going to take a break and, and maybe see if we can get a cup of coffee or something. And people would start arriving and saying, will you pray for us? And what you realize is, for these people, prayer is just about all they've got to deal with some of their problems. They don't have access to, to medical because they can't afford it, they can't reach it. Um, they come up and they have a very real and burning need for you to speak into their health and into their environments and into their finances and into their home situations and their relationships. And they're very, very open and very, very hungry for people to, to pray for them. In one of the sessions Helen taught, she taught about Jesus calming the storm, and it became evident that many of them are going through storms in their lives. You know, you kind of think, oh, our lives are very complicated. We live in a sophisticated Western society, and we have complicated financial situations and whatever. These people have an almost simple life. They live in their, their huts on their farms, and they go out in the day when the sun comes up, and they come back when it goes down, and life is simple. Life is challenging. They live on the edge of poverty all the time. They live on the edge of need. They have the same relationship challenges that we do, the same uh, developments in, in their working conditions that challenge us just in a, in a different way. And it became evident that many people were in the middle of storms. And so I taught a session following that on waiting for God's plan. And I thought I would share that because I, I'm pretty sure that sitting here this morning, some of you will be sitting in the middle of a situation where you are waiting on something from God, where there's something in your life that you've been praying about that you would like to see change, that there is something that you have been worried about, there is something that, that and, and you're sitting and waiting for that to happen. And I guess we all right realize that gets scary sometimes, and our faith begins to slip, and we begin to question, and we begin to wonder, and we begin to challenge ourselves, why isn't it happening? Why haven't I got what I prayed for? Because it's not just like turning on a switch. And as we wait, the enemy comes and says, well, there's a good reason why you're not getting this. You didn't pray correctly or you aren't living correctly or God's not going to do this for you because you aren't worth it or because you've done something wrong or there's a mistake in your life. And so I, I very briefly would like to pick out three instances of people waiting in the Bible, in the Old and the New Testament. And then if there's time, because I promised Ant I wouldn't preach long, um, if there's time, I want to look at some of the things we can do to help us to stand through the time of waiting for God's provision. And the first person I want us to look at, and I'm not going to read a lot from the, the, the Scriptures about this, but 
I'd like us to have a look at Abraham when he first meets God, Genesis 12 and verse 1. When Abraham meets God, he is, and Ant has taught about him quite a lot, he's not following God. In fact, he's living in a community that worships the moon. Um, they're living their lives for themselves and for their traditions and so forth. And God comes to this man called Abraham and launches a plan. He comes to him with a proposition. He comes to him with, with a, a promise and a challenge. And it says this in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's an incredible promise. It forms the basis of the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And if you look, he says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. It's a wonderful thing to take the time to read through Abraham's life story and see just how God fulfills these promises. Because basically he's saying to him, I will make a great nation of you, but he says, I will bless you. I will make you blessed. And amongst that, Abraham turns into a very wealthy man, a very powerful man. He commands great authority and power. He says, I will make your name great. He was famous and wealthy. He says, I will bless those who bless you. If you have a look at Abraham's story, everybody who sides himself with Abraham, everybody who works with him prospers. Just because he's around, he travels with his cousin Lot. And Lot becomes so blessed and wealthy that he and Abraham can no longer stay in the same area because they can't support their flocks on the same ground. They have to split because they become so... God fulfills all these promises in a spectacular way. If you moved against Abraham, you better watch out. If you read on, there's a story where a number of kings come and attack the area. And they beat up the kings of that area. They're a victorious, invading horde of soldiers and kings. And their invasion is going just great until they make a mistake. They capture Lot, who is Abraham's cousin. And they take him and his family. At that point, everything goes wrong. Abraham takes the whole lot on, defeats them, takes back all of their plunder from the cities and from Lot, returns it to the people and comes back. That's what happened when you went against Abraham. If you worked with him, your business prospered. Your life prospered. It was amazing. God was in a very graphic way. Go and read it. You can see this promise being fulfilled. It's amazing. But there's one part of the promise that isn't fulfilled. Years go by. When this promise is made, Abraham is 75 years old. And Sarah, his wife, is just a little bit younger than him. And they're going to have a child. Because to start a great nation, you need to start with one baby. And the one thing that doesn't come is that baby. The one thing that doesn't arrive is that baby. And it gets to the point where Abraham eventually says to God, I've got all this stuff, but I've got no one to leave it to. If I was to die now, I'd have to leave it to one of my servants. And God says again, I'm going to give you a child. You get to, to, to um, Genesis 16, you'll find that Abraham and Sarah try their own plan. They do a whole thing where she gives her, her servant to him as a wife and he has a baby with a servant and they call that their child and that's Ishmael who becomes the founder of the Islamic nation and it causes a real upset because they get a bit impatient and God still doesn't give up. And when Abraham is 100 years old, he gets given a child. 
100 years old. 25 years he waited. 25 years he waited, and in that time, he questioned why he waited. He questioned what he must have done wrong. He maybe, he just didn't know what was going on. And I, I say this to you, I don't know why he had to wait 25 years for that promise, but it happens. Sometimes the things we're asking God for take longer than we want them to take. Sometimes the things don't, you know, if you look at this promise that he got, go back to Genesis 12:1. it's a very straightforward promise. I will make a great nation for me. That's the first thing that he says. That's the last thing that happens. And it got hard for Abraham, but he stands. He stands and he stands, and the promise comes much later than expected. He couldn't make it happen himself. He couldn't make the promise happen. He couldn't change what he was doing. Their plan just caused problems. But eventually, after 100 years, God fulfills the, 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 the prophecy. And you know, the very last thing he says is, all people on the earth will be blessed through you. What we need to realize is hundreds and hundreds of years later, out of the lineage of that child that was born after 25 years of waiting, many hundreds of years later, in that lineage, a baby is born whose name is Jesus Christ, through whom... The whole world is blessed. God fulfills everything He promises, but He doesn't do it in our time. And what I would urge you to do if you're waiting is wait patiently. Don't start believing that God doesn't do what He says He will do. Don't start looking at yourself and ripping yourself to shreds and saying it isn't happening because I'm not good enough because I haven't lived a life in the way God wants me to and start looking. Sometimes God just waits. He sees a much pic bigger picture than we do. And the other thing I would urge you not to do is start making other plans around God's plan. Because generally when we step in and try and tell God how to do it, as Abram and Sarah did with Ishmael and Hagar, we create more problems. So sometimes it takes a long time. Keep trusting that God will do what He says. Don't start breaking yourself down and don't start making other plans. The next group of people that waited we find in the New Testament, and we find the story in John chapter 11. It's a story that probably you know well. It's about a man called Lazarus and his two sisters, Martha and Mary. And I just want to lift out a couple of things that are pertinent in this particular story in the Bible. This was a family that was greatly loved by Jesus. There are other places in the Bible where we're told how he would come and visit at their home. And Mary that is mentioned here is the same woman, the famous woman, who went in and broke a jar of, of, of perfume on Jesus' feet, washed his feet with her tears and dried his feet with her hair. And the Bible says she was a woman who had been living a really, really sinful life and Jesus had saved her from that. These were people that loved Jesus deeply, that had already had Jesus change their lives miraculously, and they were people that he deeply loved. This is an intimate, close friendship. And Lazarus falls ill, and you can read about it in, in, in John chapter 11. He falls ill, and the first thing they do is the right thing for us to do if we are followers of Jesus. They send a message to Jesus. In our terms, we would pray. That's the first thing that they did. They had no hesitation with great confidence in his ability because they had seen him do these kind of things and heal people before. They send for Jesus. And they send with great confidence, your friend is sick. Your friend is ill. He needs you. And weirdly, by our understanding, when the message gets to Jesus and the disciples think, okay, we are on our way, you know, almost with the blue lights flashing, Jesus says, no, we'll wait. We'll wait. 
And I can imagine Mary and Martha back home waiting in great anticipation because they had great confidence. Not only did they have great confidence that Jesus could heal, but they had great confidence that Jesus would want to heal this man. This was a close friendship. These were not people who said, maybe this Jesus will help us. If, if, we, if we send out a message to him, maybe he will be interested in us. Maybe he'll be able to do it. These were people that knew Jesus loves us and who knew firsthand Jesus can, and yet he doesn't come. And you know, I'm sure, how the story goes. They wait and they wait and they wait. I think any moment expecting him to walk in and to see the miracle take place. And then Lazarus dies. That's a kick in the stomach. And still Jesus doesn't come. And Lazarus gets buried. And now it is hopeless because he's begun to decompose. It's, this is beyond their expectations. They've now moved out of their area of confidence into an area of this can't happen, or so it seems. But if we read in John chapter 11, verse 21, when Jesus does arrive, Mary, uh, Martha says something very, very important. He arrives and she says to him in verse 21, because he eventually now, when everything is over and there's nothing more that can be done, Jesus goes. And he arrives and she says to him, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then she says this, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. One of the things that gets thrown against people when they pray and things don't happen, people say to them, you don't have enough faith. Have you heard that? You've got to have more faith. You've got to dig in deeper. And they almost chuck it. You've got somebody here who's being beaten against the rails and beaten against the ropes, and they're praying and they're holding on, and someone comes along and says, you aren't trying hard enough. You don't have enough faith. I want to say to you, don't let people say that to you. These people had great faith in Jesus. They had great confidence in Jesus. They were expecting it. There was nothing wrong with their faith. He just chose to do it differently. And when he arrives, Martha says to him, where were you? She, she, but her faith is still strong. She says, where were you? If, you? if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And then she says, but I still know that God will give you what you ask. And you know what happens. I know you do. Jesus goes to the tomb where the stinking body is lying. He asks for it to be opened up. It says he wept. I want to say this to you. When Jesus knows we're waiting and when Jesus knows we're going through the storm, it does not bring joy to him to see us suffer. He is not indifferent to our suffering. He's not playing games with us. But sometimes there's a bigger picture in God's plan. And what's going to happen here is God's going to be glorified in an even greater way. Because he says, Lazarus come out and Lazarus comes out. And their joy is restored and their life, his life is restored. And he goes on to have a ministry after that. He's rumored to have traveled around the Mediterranean as a missionary in, in terms of some of the historical writings that followed the time of the apostles. But there's a great restoration. But at the time they were going through it, it was inexplicable. And it wasn't down to a lack of faith. And it wasn't down. They knew Jesus loved them. They knew he could. They'd seen both. And still he didn't move. Now I want to encourage you that if you are in the middle of the storm, don't let people come to you and challenge you as to God's love for you. I want to say this to you. None of us can earn an answer to prayer. None of us can earn the grace of God. We get it given it by grace. 
God's love helps us. So when things are going tough and you're praying and you're standing in faith and you're trusting God and you know that He can do it and you know that the Word says He will do it and it's still not happening, don't let people come and shred you and say, it's because you haven't got enough faith. It's because you aren't trying hard enough. Trying hard is not going to get things done. Ant's been teaching for quite a long time, our salvation comes by grace through faith and not of our works. Well, so does the answer to every prayer. It comes because Jesus chooses to bless us, not because our, our best works, the Bible says to us, are like dirty rags. The very best we can offer. There is nothing we can offer God that can earn his, his love to us. He just gives it because of who He is. And if you're waiting, and if you're praying in the will of God, and if you know what you're praying for is God's will, and you know that that it should be something that, that will be coming into your life and it's not happening, I want to encourage you to stand. But I want to move on to one final example in the New Testament because there is something that we need to look at in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12 and verses 7 and 8. We read something that we need to read and understand because it does put a different perspective on waiting sometimes. The Apostle Paul is writing and he's talking to the Corinthians and he says in verse 7, halfway through, Therefore... In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest in me. It's believed by many that Paul was talking about some form of physical ailment that he had. He talks about a thorn in my flesh. A physical discomfort. We don't know what it is. Some people believe it might have had something to do with his sight, because at one point where he's writing, he, he says, see, I've written in my own hand, see how big it is, and some people think he might have been short-sighted or had damage to his eyes of some kind, but we don't know. What we do know is that the Apostle Paul, a man who himself had been used by God to raise the dead, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, who had seen miracles of great magnitude take place in his own life, on three occasions asked God to do something, and at the time of this writing, God still hadn't done it. Prayer and trusting God is not like a slot machine. The Bible says we pray and we believe, and we stand and we wait for God to do His purpose in our life. For whatever reason... And I cannot explain it, and I will not be so arrogant as to try and explain it. There was a reason why God had not chosen at this point to remove this thing from Paul's life. But what he says to him is, I will give you the grace to go through it. Although I have not taken it out of your life, I will give you the strength and the grace to function with that thing in your life. I will take care of you. I would love to say to you that every single thing you pray for is going to come right if you just wait long enough. But I don't know that. Sometimes God has us waiting a long time until everybody else thinks it's impossible, like Abraham. Sometimes God has us waiting so long that it seems even impossible to us, like Lazarus. And sometimes he says to us, I'm not doing anything right now, but here's the grace to go through it. Here is the strength to go through it. Maybe you're not going to have what you want. Maybe that's not the best thing in your life at this time as much as you want it. But I will give you the grace to go through it. It's a challenge. How do we deal with it? Well, he gives us the grace. But there are some things, and I just need to find it now. 
There are some things that we can look at in terms of perseverance. Some of the things we can look at in terms of strengthening ourselves to stand as we wait. If you look in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 7 and 8, Paul says this, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul had something that helped him to stand even to the fact that his prayer about this particular issue was not answered. Paul, of all people, understood that God answered prayer. He'd had jails collapse around him. He had survived shipwrecks. He, he had been through many things. He knew the power of prayer. But in some things, like his own health, it didn't happen. But there was something that kept him standing on God's promises. He says, I know that my final reward is not here. I know that when I finish the race, my, reward, my final reward waits there. He had a perspective on life which was down here, he once said this, he said, for me to live is Christ. For me to live on this earth is to serve Christ. When I die one day, that is gain. That's when I will have the unchallenged, unfettered, undiluted glory of God in my life. For now, I serve God. I ask Him to help me serve Him here. What He grants me, I use. And he, He'd seen the miracles of God. When something isn't going my way, I carry on. I keep fighting the race. I don't stop. The first thing we need to look at is we need to have perseverance. The second thing I would say to you is when you start praying for something, count the cost. When you enter into a battle, be aware of the fact that it might be a long battle. There are a couple of things said in Luke chapter 14 about counting the cost from verse 28 onwards. And it talks about if someone wants to build a tower, do they not first count the cost? Do they not look at what they're letting themselves in for before they start building? Because the Scripture says if they start building and aren't able to complete it, people will look and say, that's a bit silly. Which is a king going into a battle and taking on a battle before he goes, has a look and says, is this a battle I should be taking on? I've got a couple of men and he's got thousands of men. Should I take on the battle? And I would say this to you, before you nail your colors to the mast, count the cost. Is this God's plan for your life? Am I praying in line with what God has got planned for me? Is this something of value? I would not advocate standing in, in earnest prayer for God to give you a Ferrari. Um, unless He needs you to have a Ferrari. Is this something that you want to stake and get to tell all your friends, I've been praying for three years for a Ferrari and I'm waiting for God to give it. Guys, I don't think He's going to give it. I, I, I don't think that that's what we're talking about here. When we're talking about waiting for God's prayers, it's what are we praying for? Have we counted the cost? Is this something... Is this something that we're taking to God that affects our lives for Him and affects our lives on a daily basis? So count the cost. Thirdly, value the prize. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 24 to 26 says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the game goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, do not run like someone running aimlessly. You know, I sometimes hear people saying, I'm trusting God for this, and you start talking to them about what they're trusting God for, and there's no plan, there's no purpose, there's no real. It's just like, well, this would be nice. Let's pray about it. This is a good idea. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't work. And so casually, we'll throw it out there, and maybe God will bite on the bait. You know, if I don't ask, I won't get. 
So I might as well ask for it. But there's no value being placed in it. I want to say again, God is a God who provides. God is a God who provides more than we need. But He's not a slot machine. He's not a slot machine. You don't pop in a prayer and get an answer casually because you are on a whim on a particular day. Value, when you go to God asking, go to God expecting and valuing what God intends to do in your life. Paul also says this. He says, release yourself from things that hold you back. Hebrews 12 verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Put aside the things that hold you back. Put aside the things that stop you trusting God and become focused. You know, Abram and Sarah just never gave up on wanting to have that child. They just never gave up. It wasn't something that they were casually interested in. It was something that they desperately wanted. And they went forward. They left behind. He said, God said to them in, in Genesis 12:1, if you will come away from your family and your things and leave your family and your homes behind you, then I will do these things. And they dropped everything to follow God. Sometimes God's like our backup. We've got all our own plans. We've got all our own purposes. We've got our own mission in place. We've got our own idea of what we're going to do. And then we pray and say, oh, God, please bless what I'm intending to do. Please give me success in this thing that I'm striving for. I've got a plan, and I'd like you to underwrite my plan. It's the other way around. We go to God and say, what is your plan? What do I need to leave aside of my plan? And sometimes the way God wants us to do things doesn't turn out the way that we wanted to do it, but we need to be prepared to lay it aside. Second last, don't stop. Galatians 6 verse 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. I wonder sometimes how many times I have turned back just before God fulfills the plan. How many times I've turned and gone down the mountain not realizing that the crest was just ahead of me because I've grown weary in well-doing. And maybe you've had a situation that you've been taking before God and you've been struggling to deal with and you have gone on and gone on and you've been strong and you've cast aside all things and you've been going towards this and you've been trusting God and then one day you just say, you know what, I've had enough of this and you step away. Maybe just at the point that God is about to move. Do not grow weary in well-doing. And finally, and I know I'm moving fast, but I need to um, support and encourage and lift one another up. When one is strong, others may be weak. Rejoice and support one another. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11, finally, brothers and sisters. <laughs> She's okay. She's okay. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. I want to just bring a personal note into this. It's not maybe the time now for me to share a particular testimony. Maybe one day I will when I'm preaching. But Sandra and I, when we were a young married couple and decided to have children, went through a time in which we tried everything and spent all the money we could get hold of on doctors and on treatments and whatever we could get until finally after five years of doing that, we were told that we could not have children, that it was out of the question. And at that point, all we had left was God. Without going into the whole story, which I might share one time, six months later, Sandra fell pregnant with Jessica. 
It was such a shock to the medical profession that when I found out the infertility clinic we'd been at and said that she was pregnant with Jessica, they said to me, that's impossible. I said, no, there's definitely something there. They said, if there is something there, it's a bloated ovum and it needs to be removed. Well, we've now got two wonderful bloated ovums, one of them sitting over here. The other one's 29 years old and thriving. But in line with this last verse, in the time that we were going through that, it was a long wait and it was a hard wait and there were times that we were up and there were times that we were down. And there were some people that were a real blessing in our lives because they just quietly stood alongside us as we went through it. And there were some people who said things that I think they had no idea how much pain they were inflicting and who gave advice that was not helpful but terribly hurtful. And I would say to this to you, we need to support one another as we go through storms. We need to support one another as we are standing and waiting, having done all, it says in Galatians 6, having done everything, we stand. We need as a, as a, a body of Christ to get alongside one another and stand in love and companionship, not in criticism, not in a way that after a while starts saying, well, you must be doing something wrong. You must be letting God down somewhere. Unbelievable how subtly people say that into your life sometimes when you're struggling. I want to encourage you in all the things that you might be doing to stand and see God's will. Be aware of those around you. Encourage them. Be encouraged by them. We need to be a body of Christ that supports one another, not just when it's going well, but at the lowest ebb. We need to be the kind of people that get alongside and say, I don't know what's going on either but I'll pray with you. I don't understand. I don't feel a need to offer you a theological solution to your problem. All I will do is say, I love you, and I'll get in here alongside you, and I'll pray with you. There may be some folk here this morning who are going through a storm and who are standing and waiting for an answer. And I'm not going to ask you to identify yourself or stand up or do anything like that, but I'm going to pray, and I'm just going to invite you to pray along with me as we ask God to intervene. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a gracious and a loving God. I thank you that you love us and that your plans for us are good plans to, to prosper us and not to harm us. And Lord, I know that there are very likely people sitting here who are going through pain, who are going through anxiety, who have been seeking your face about a certain issue for years, whose Confidence might be at a very low ebb, whose sense of value might be very low at the moment, and they're wondering why is it that they're not hearing or seeing the fulfillment of what they've been promised or what they've been standing for. Lord, I want to pray right now for your grace and your peace. I want to pray, Lord, that you lift them up, that you strengthen them, that you give them the courage to persevere even when they're weary. And I want to pray for us as a congregation, as a, as a church family here at Forest Town, Lord, that we will be people who will support one another, who will be gentle, who will be kind, who will be understanding, and who will be persistent in supporting one another. Lord, we thank you that you give graciously, that you give without expecting anything in return, that you give generously. And so I pray for answered prayers, Lord. I pray for breakthrough, and I pray for grace as we stand and wait for that in Jesus' name. Amen.